Good morning, everybody. Oh, thanks. Um, like Claire said, yeah, this, this week we organized our service around something different and that we took communion. The big notable thing is that we just received communion before we got started together. And like Claire said, the reason is because this, a lot of weeks, we set up our service designed around kind of like we want you to think about something or to learn something or to discover something or to respond to something. But this is not a, a you week, this is a, a us week. Um, this morning we're beginning a new series at our church and it's called A Church For. That wasn't the original title. The original title was A Church For People Who, but that was like wordy, I guess. And I ran out of, when I was designing the picture, I ran out of space, so I had to change it. If you've been around churches before, um, this is uh, a series that's it's the kind of thing that's sometimes called a vision series, which means that it's a chance for us to talk in a focused way about who we feel called to be as a church community and what mission we think we're being led to pursue as a church. Now, not just revolution, but it turns out that most churches set out to do this sort of thing about once a year. And the goals uh, for these kinds of series are, one, to help newer folks connect to a sense of our church as something that is here for more than just its own existence, which if I were visiting a church for the first time would be my main worry. It's like, are you guys like just trying to perpetuate the thing that you are? And so the goal is to try and help newer folks see that that's not the case with us, that we are that we do have a vision for what we want to do and be beyond just existing. And then there's the secondary goal of helping older folks who've been around for a long time see again how all the pieces of our church community fit together into a whole. Now, to my knowledge, there's no such thing as like how to do church handbook, or if there is, I didn't get one when I like took the job, which is frustrating. But assuming they don't exist, this is the kind of thing that I think would probably be in one to try and take some time once a year to reconnect ourselves to what we're all about. And the reason that that's important is because it can be easy for a community like a church to just settle into the rhythms of, of hanging out each week, each week, right? Just doing this thing. But the church that Jesus has built is intended for more than just that. The church that Jesus has built is intended, and if you're a person who takes notes, this is the part where I tell you the vision statement for revolutions. Like, maybe it'll go on the screen. I don't remember if I made a slide for it, but this is the vision statement of revolution. The church is intended, we believe, to bear witness to the goodness and the freedom of the way of Jesus. To bear witness to the goodness and the freedom of the way of Jesus. And that means that we exist in the world so that everybody can see that the Jesus way is, is real and that it's powerful and that it knits people, even strangers, even people who don't have anything else in common, it knits them into these supportive relationships with each other. And then as it's knitting people in these relationships, it's helping us to deepen our trust in this God of the universe. And then not only that, but it also is enabling us to be agents of that same God's love and justice and generosity towards everybody in every sort of need. We believe that God actively loves this world that he's made and that he's not just in love with it, but that he's committed to making the broken things that we all feel in this world right again. And so to prove those things to be true, we work to try and be people who make those things 
right. And we do that not in our own power, but by following this kind of countercultural and altogether surprising way of Jesus, who shows us that even death isn't unconquerable for God. Okay, that was the vision part. We usually start with jokes, but instead I just figured I'd try to sum the whole thing up and we'll like stash the jokes at the end today. It's like a reward when we get there. But truly, truly, that's what we want to reconnect to in this series. Revolution is one church among many churches trying to bear witness to the amazing or this amazing God so that other people can encounter and feel and learn to trust God's love for them too. However, we have a twist this time out for this vision series. And the twist relates to something that I'm increasingly afraid in this moment we're all living in that Christians are beginning to miss when we talk about all the good stuff that we want to go out there and do. And it's this, that those people that we all say, that every church says we exist for, those people are often treated like a generic and random bunch of sinners out there. And so we say things in churches like, we love our neighbors, but who are we talking about? Who are our neighbors? What is distinct and special about our neighbors? What makes us special as a particular community that's setting out to love those unique and special people. And so that's the series we actually want to start today. Revolution is a church for whom? There's an M on that because I'm an English teacher. For whom? Because it's the object of a preposition. (laughs) To answer that question, I think we need to get two quick assumptions on the table that can help us clarify who we're talking about when we say a word like church. And the first is this. I'm going to get through these pretty quick. But the first is this. The church, meaning all Christians over all time everywhere, the church is for everyone. The church is for everyone. You can't leave anybody out. No, we, like, we don't get to do that corporately. And we know that the church is for everybody because the biblical mission statement for Christians is one of those few things that we have with pretty high level of clarity and and simplicity in scripture. And it comes from an authoritative source and that it's something Jesus said. So what does Jesus say about the mission of the church? He says to his disciples, all authority in heaven on earth and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surprising and wonderful clarity. And that's it, right? The church that Jesus has started isn't just for Jerusalem. It's not just for Jews. It's not just for seekers. It's not just for Republicans or Democrats. It is for all nations everywhere that they might follow Jesus into the redeemed and eternal life that he leads us into. So the church is for everybody. But the second assumption we draw from scripture is this one. A church, a church meaning a local body of believers like this one here is for a particular people. A church is for a particular people. When the Apostle Paul, once upon a time, went to new towns in order to start churches, he would go first into the synagogues and 
he would teach there, and typically the story goes that he gets laughed out almost everywhere. And so he starts in sort of the formal place that one would go to try and begin a ministry for Jews in a community. But then, after getting laughed out of there, he would go to these other places and to these other groups of people who were primed to listen to him. Often the people that he would go to were women, often they were poor, often they were non-Jews. And he would talk to them instead. And there's something distinct about Paul and the way God's using Paul in the early church that resonates with these other groups of people who don't connect with the establishment. There's a reason he finds them out of the synagogue. They weren't in the synagogue to start with. And so he builds churches among those people. God makes churches out of those people. And then those churches consistently develop these distinct identities in whatever communities they're in. And the leaders of the early church we see in scripture nourish that uniqueness in these early churches. Paul sums all of this up repeatedly in his letters using this metaphor of a body, right? He writes this in 1 Corinthians 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. So the body is not made up of one part, but of many. So what I'm taking from this and what I'm communicating here is that the church is for everybody, but the church is made up of small churches who exist for specific groups of people. So that's the, the background of what we're talking about today. But then that, of course, leads us to our own question, right? Who are we for? Who are we for? And I think answering that question rightly requires that we figure out these two really important things. One, who have we, the people in this room, the people of revolution, who have we been given eyes to see? And what have we been given ears to hear? Today in week one, or this could be a four-part series, we're going to talk about four distinct people that I think we're equipped to see. But here in week one, I want to make the case that who we have eyes to see is pretty clear and it's been pretty consistent at Revolution. God has given us a deep and a special compassion for people who are wary of the church. He's given us a deep and special compassion for people who are wary of the church. Many years ago in 2010, yes, that math just like kind of upset me for a second thinking about it. In 2010, we were founded and that that idea, that compassion was expressed in the slogan that we used back then called a church for people who don't like church. And in our early days, we became a haven for people who either rejected or were rejected by mainline Christian religion. That's kind of our, our starting point. Our core members, both then and, and still, have been folks who struggled to connect with conventional church services, people who felt alienated by church politics. This is a true story for many of us. People who were frustrated maybe by what they felt was a lack of real social action on behalf of people who were hurting in the churches that they came from. And by God's grace, many people who were wrestling or had experienced that kind of hurt have found each other here in this church and the Holy Spirit and his goodness has built that kind of ragtag bunch of frustrated people into a community here at Revolution that's focused on trying to be different in these ways, to be a different kind of church, not the only kind or the best kind, but a different kind for people like us. But that 
like I said a minute ago, is a 12-year-old story. And what I'm increasingly concerned about for us now is that I think we're in danger of missing some things that are changing as we move out specifically of the, the kind of chaos of these last few years. Because there's still a lot of people out there in the world, specifically people here in Annapolis, who are wary of Christians and wary of Christian faith. But what we need to begin to see more clearly is that the reasons that they're wary of Christian faith are changing. The reasons are changing. And so if we really want to be the distinct and unique church that we have been in the past and that we feel called to be, we have to kind of pause for a vision check of sorts because our prescription needs some updating these people that we're trying to see. So here's what I'm asking God to help me see. Revolution can be a church for people who are deconstructing faith. Have you heard this term? It's on Facebook and Instagram all the time, but outside of that, you may have run into it. Deconstructing. Are you somebody who would identify with that term? If the word's new to you, then I want to summarize what it means in general. And then I want to invite you to join me in trying to understand what it means here, locally, in our own community. And finally, I want us to listen to what God says about it, and then hopefully open ourselves up to be challenged by the answer. So we got four steps. The first is the big definition. All right, and I'm the English teacher you, but I'm gonna move quickly. Deconstruction is a specific term that means a specific thing, and specifically, it refers to a postmodern philosophical practice, you love all of those words, I know, but stay with me, of questioning the assumptions and hidden values or structures that are underneath cultural institutions. Questioning those assumptions, and those hidden values and structures that are underneath our institutions. And the goal of deconstruction is to expose the ways that there are injustices embedded in our culture and then to encourage freedom from those injustices. That's all complicated, but I think it will be helpful if I show you some examples, right? We're seeing this a lot in very specific institutions in our world right now. On the political left, we're seeing this in the ways that we're talking about our history books and our curriculum in schools. We're seeing this in the ways that we're talking about things like policing. You've seen that in the news, right? Like what are the assumptions that are underneath these institutions and how are they dangerous or oppressive? And then on the political right, we see this in concerns about like a political deep state and all that kind of stuff. So there, are there's this movement in our culture at large that wants to get down to like what are these things underneath our society that might be causing problems that are perpetuated and we are also seeing that same cultural movement affecting the church affecting us but here's the thing like you read articles about this you get into like high level of philosophy conversations with people about it like i don't know that that really gets us very far because what I'm experiencing in my own life from actual people that I'm talking to who are going through this process, who would identify as deconstructors, is this. Although the philosophical goal of this thing is this kind of anarchy-based freedom, the spiritual goal of people that are on a deconstruction journey isn't to blow everything up. It's trying to figure out if there is anything underneath the abuse and the deception and the meanness that they've encountered from Christians. There's anything under there that's worth saving. And 
time after time over these last few years, I have sat across from folks getting coffee or lunch or whatever who are deconstructing their faith and they're doing this with deep and profound grief. I've yet to sit across from the person who's like, let me tell you how exciting this process is and like how much I love walking away from the church. That's not happening. And what they're saying over and over is that the church had been a place that was safe for them. They'd grown up in it, but it's not safe anymore. And they feel betrayed by the church and what's changed in it. And they feel lost. So the question for us this morning that I, I think can anchor this conversation is this. Can we be trusted with our neighbor's grief? Can we be trusted with our neighbor's grief? And even more than that, are we open to learning from their grief, especially if the thing they're grieving about implicates us and challenges us? So let's look at those questions, right? What are deconstructors saying and feeling about the church? They're saying some things that are music to our ears at Revolution because they go way back. This is like the complaints about the church that in 2010 we were all making and it led to the little formation of this group. They say stuff like this, Christians are hypocrites. And everybody's like, yes, totally, I agree. And then they say that church is a stuffy country club. And we're like, yes, not here, dude, we fixed that. And then they say stuff like sermons are just feel good lessons about getting rich. And then I'm like, not me. <laughs> like, I am neither rich nor have I ever made you feel good. So, <laughs> that, you know, that deconstructors are telling us that the ties between the American church and politics are bad. And again, we're all like, yes, we've known that for 12 years. And those are all church for people who don't like church complaints. But people who are deconstructing are saying some other things too that may not be so easy for us to kind of like celebrate. They're telling us this. They're telling us that the institutions of fast-growing, edgy, and cool churches, that the institutions of those churches are corrupt and that they lead to worshiping pastors over worshiping God. They're telling us that churches are run more like businesses with a brand and a product to sell than they are deep communities of faith. They're telling us that the desire among churches to protect that brand and product leads cool churches to engage constantly in PR spin and gaslighting and manipulation. They're telling us that the desire to grow those cool churches and their brands leads to manipulating the people that go to them and burning them out as volunteers and free labor. And then there's a bigger one than all that. They're telling us that American Christians, real American Christians, look and sound a lot less like Jesus than your average friendly atheist does. And those complaints should hit closer to home for us if we have ears to hear them. And more than that, they should lead us to repent. If deconstruction at like the big American cultural level is this way about 
talking about like big picture doubts in cultural Christianity. Deconstruction at the local Annapolis level as a way of talking about real humans who have very reasonable fears. That if Christians or people who say they're Christians can't get Jesus right, maybe nobody can get Jesus right. And worse than that, maybe there's nothing under there to have faith in in the first place. Maybe this is all just smoke and mirrors and self-perpetuation. God help us. God have mercy on us. God transform us into something new. My conviction is that we need to listen to people who are feeling that pain and not push them away. And I personally feel called by God to do that. That's in my wiring. And I don't always do it well. Please don't get me confused because I get defensive of this faith that, that I've been in my whole life. But I think that whatever church I'm a part of, I hope is a church that is for people that are on a journey like the one that we're describing. And I believe that this church, that you humans that are in this community with me, that you're wired in a similar way to me, that we're wired to be sensitive to this together. And I think God has drawn us together because one thing that the people in our community need is one church with a heart for this kind of struggle. There are other things that the people in our community need. There are, and can and there should be so many other kinds of churches, but we can be this one, this kind of church. But even if we're willing to sit with people who are hurting, and even if we're willing to say the things that Christians need to be willing to say to them, which for the record are, you're safe here, you can rest here, you can explore faith here, and we're with you, even if you don't find the answers that we want you to find. Even if we're willing to do all that, we still need to have a plan. Compassion is part of the story, but what's our plan? How do we be a church like this? How can we be a church for a person who is deconstructing? Well, in general, if we trust God to make a way for us, which is a thing we sing about all the time and talk about from time to time, we're trusting God to make a way for, the, for us. One of the things we can do is look back at the story that he's already told us, and we can ask, have we been here before? Because everything feels new when you're in the middle of it, but maybe it isn't. Have we been here before? And if we have been here before, what did we do then, and what can we learn from what was done? The good news is deconstruction's not new. It's something that we see in Scripture. It's something that the church has been doing famously once when we like posted some things to a door and like reformed the whole church. But like we've done this many times in the past. So let's look at some examples, and that's kind of how we'll move towards the, the end today. One person that we see on a deconstruction journey in Scripture is Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Nicodemus is a Pharisee, right, which means that he's deeply schooled and he's radically committed to Jewish Scripture. However, after hearing about Jesus's ministry, including Jesus's vocal condemnation of people like him, he does an unusual thing, right? Nicodemus, the Bible tells us, came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you're doing if God were not with him. So deep down, Nicodemus knows that Jesus challenges his beliefs about God and about his own faith. But even though he knows that he's being challenged by this person, he goes to them anyways and asks questions anyways. And what happens when Nicodemus asks questions? Well, 
the story goes on, right? Jesus replies. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Unhelpful as an answer. So Nicodemus then says, well, how can you do that? How can somebody be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus is only marginally more helpful in saying, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. And it goes on like this. So I don't want to belabor the point here. What we see in Nicodemus is this. I think we see in Nicodemus somebody courageous enough to ask questions about their faith, even if the answers are confusing and hard. Even if they force him to rethink his whole career path and orientation and life. And so if we're going to be a church for people who have hard questions, who are deconstructing, we have to genuinely and deeply foster those kinds of questions. And we also have to respond as Jesus does in this story. Because here's the thing, right? Surely Jesus understands why Nicodemus visits him at night when he does. Nicodemus may have the courage to go and talk to them, but he doesn't have courage to do it when anybody's looking. And yet, Jesus doesn't criticize him. He doesn't call this out about what he's doing. Instead, he welcomes him and he teaches him. Revolution can and should be a place that is free from the shame or the eye rolling that like, these kinds of judgments could incur. We have to be a church that is kind and accepting and sincere and a church that promotes and encourages questions even if they are challenging to the things that we believe. Another thing, another person that we see deconstructing in scripture. It's a big one, right? It's Paul. Saul, if we're gonna get technical at the time, but Paul. Before he becomes the most influential missionary in history, Paul's also a Pharisee, just like Nicodemus, persecuting Christians. And like Nicodemus, he's focused and he's devout. And like Nicodemus, he has this encounter with Jesus who appears before him and asks him, why do you persecute me on the road to Damascus? And this show of power by Jesus, this confrontation utterly transforms Paul's life. And in a specific way, it radically deconstructs his faith only to replace that faith with something that's powerful and more than that personal. But here's what I really want us to see in Paul's story because you might feel like you're stretching a little bit, but I'm not because here's the point that I want us to get to. The thing that's cool about Paul's story is that the church's story is secondary to the Jesus story. He's the most powerful and influential missionary that the church has ever had. And also, the church's story is secondary to the Jesus story. In his letter to Christians in Galatia, here's what Paul writes to them. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but rather I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. But when God was pleased to reveal his son in me, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. Paul, the greatest church planter in history, waited three years to join a church. In the meantime, 
he got to know Jesus. In other letters, Paul is clear that what unites him with the other leaders of the early church, with Peter and James and the rest, is never his loyalty to them. He's repeatedly willing to challenge them. What unites him with them is his love for their common savior. Jesus is the anchor for Paul's church. Now here's my point, because that can sound churchy. We say stuff like Jesus is the anchor all the time. If you are struggling with the church, not only is that okay, that is common. Because the church is not, in fact, Jesus. So if you're looking for a place to start when you're hurting, when you're having doubts about the church, you start with him. And if you trust him, the one thing that we see over and over and over again in scripture is that Jesus will lead you to community. Now, I want to be crystal clear here because it's a common temptation. I don't think that we can or that we should do faith alone. I don't think it works. I think right now as we look around Annapolis, Annapolis is full of friends and neighbors who thought like when church went virtual and they checked out and then they like were kind of like, I'm just going to do this on my own. And then the church got all tangled in politics and all these other things that made us all mad. And they were like, you know what? Actually, I'm never going back. It's just me and Jesus from here on out. And it's been two years. And what I'm running into in sort of coffee date after coffee date are people saying like, I didn't do it though. And I'm not gonna. Because you're not meant to. You're not meant to do faith alone. If you're actually pursuing it, it's gonna draw you into community. But you have to start with Jesus and let him lead you where you need to go, not try to find a place that you think is cool and hope that you can meet Jesus there. Being Christian isn't about loving the place or the people group first, right? It's not about loving me. It's not about loving revolution or being loyal to an institution. You're not revolutionians, you're Christians. It's about loving Jesus and then trusting Jesus to lead you into your right place in the larger body. So a church for people who are deconstructing, ask questions and it puts Jesus first, above even its own story. Then what? So our last deconstructor requires us to go way back to the last days of the ancient kingdom of Israel. He's one of my favorite figures of the Old Testament. His name is Habakkuk. Now Habakkuk is a prophet, which means he gets the job of relaying stuff that God says to people who don't want to hear it and ignore him generally. Now in this case, Israel's enemies are gathering strength and Israel's leaders are doing nothing about it. And one day Habakkuk prays this. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There's strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. Habakkuk is mad that God's allowing his people to so badly betray his name. He's mad that God's letting the people who say they belong to God so badly betray his name. And he wants God to do something about that. And God says this, look at the nations and watch. And be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. And what is that amazing thing nobody would believe? 
Well, what God is going to do is he is going to allow the Chaldeans to absolutely rout and defeat and then enslave Israel. Justice. And Habakkuk's dismayed by this plan. He says to God, we may be wicked, but we're better than the Chaldeans. And I wonder if we can like relate to that moment just for a second. To put this in our own terms, God is saying that he's going to save his people by destroying their kingdom. And our tendency, I think, like Habakkuk, is to ask God for a gentler plan or one that weighs, even though we know that we're bad, like still holds us up against worse people and comes out on our side. But why does God do this? Well, he does this because Israel is more than an empire. The people of Israel are more than an empire. And I wonder if in our own moment of reckoning in the American church, if we have ears to hear that. Do we believe that Christ's church is more than the empire that we have built? To be a church for deconstructors, we have to pursue a God-sized imagination for what the church really is. We can't be defensive. We also can't give up. What we need to do is follow the example that Habakkuk is about to set for us in the story. So what does he do? He does this. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am going to give to this complaint. He doesn't give up on God. What he does, and he doesn't stop being mad. What he does is he goes up to this watchtower and he waits for God to speak. Habakkuk's faith here is being aggressively shaken. He's just been told his kingdom is about to be destroyed. But his answer isn't being defensive or deaf. His answer is being diligent and responsive. So for anybody who's going through a process of deconstruction, this is what I most want for you. I want you to have the boldness and the hope necessary to expect God to answer your hard-earned questions. And my conviction is that a church that is really for you is the kind of church that climbs the watchtower steps with you in order to sit with you and wait with you. We don't speak for God. We don't tell you not to be angry. We don't tell you not to ask questions. We don't defend ourselves when you're critical of us. We hold the door, we climb the ladder, and we pull up a seat with you. All faith is wrestling. All faith is wrestling because it's trying to hold on to something that's bigger than you are. And it's healthiest when the goal is connecting to that bigger thing and not controlling that bigger thing. And any mechanism that we've ever built to control or limit our God is something that needs to be deconstructed. But what if our imagination for the church wasn't just introducing people to a packaged and a sanitized God? What if our imagination for the church was big enough to include living together in the awe and even in the confusion that a real and amazing God creates? This, this is what I think we mean when we talk about a church for people who are deconstructing. And I think that's the kind of church we can be.